Hey everybody, what's up? It's Chase. Welcome to another episode of the show, the Chase Jarvis Live Show here on Creative Live. You know the show where I sit down with incredible humans and I do everything I can to unpack their brains with the goal of helping you live your dreams in career, hobby, and life. My guest today is a dear, dear personal friend. She's been on the show before. She is the one and only Debbie Millman. Now, she describes herself as a writer, a designer, educator, artist, brand consultant, and host of the podcast Design Matters, one of the longest running podcasts of all time. It is absolutely incredible. I have been a guest there. I highly recommend it. Uh, we also talked today about a bunch of really important stuff. Of course, she's got a new book out based largely on the podcast called Why Design Matters. But more importantly, we talk about a number of things things like what it is that you truly love to do and why that is so important in your life. How do you spend more time doing what you love? In Debbie's case, it's the the craft of making, of doing. And for you, we're not sure what that is, but this is going to help you identify it and do more of it. We also talk about childhood trauma, which is critical for everyone. Every single one of us has experiences in our childhood that affect who we are as adults and how we make decisions, process information. Debbie's story about sharing that along with her friend and my friend, Tim Ferriss, they did a podcast together talking about that. We revisit that and how important that is in understanding where you are and where you want to go with your life. We talk about uh, one of the most profound pieces of advice that I think I've ever heard. Uh, and she shares that she received this from Mr. David Lee Roth on her podcast about when you're at the top, there's only one way to go. So how to build a life where you're always growing. So I'm going to get out of the way. This is an incredible episode with Debbie. Again, we're dear personal friends and we get to go to a bunch of very vulnerable and important places. I can't wait for you to enjoy the show. I'm going to step out of the way and let you get right to it. Yours truly and Debbie Milman. Hey, this episode of the Chase Jarvis Live Show is powered by Creative Live. Now, if you've been in my orbit long enough, you know that for the last decade, my own creativity has been largely focused on building creative life. Sure, I've done all kinds of side projects. I've had books and shoes, and I shoot occasionally a campaign, direct a commercial, but Creative Live has been my focus. They are also the underwriter for this show. And that's the reason you don't hear me interrupt the conversation with advertisements every 15 minutes, but it goes way beyond that. You know that I believe so deeply in the power of creativity to affect change, to get us unstuck and to unlock the things, the beliefs, the dreams that we have for this one precious life. And the best way to do that, bar none, is through subscribing to Creative Live. That unlocks more than 2,000 classes. Each of those classes used to cost between 100 and 150 bucks, and now you can unlock all of them. That's tens of thousands of hours from the world's top creators for one low price, all under 149 bucks. So where should you go to get this offer? Go to creativelive.com slash creator pass. All one word, creativelive.com slash creator pass. We're adding new classes every week and we're always streaming free content if you're new to the platform and you want to check it out. If you happen to be one of the listeners that already has a subscription, Thank you so much, and let me know what you learned most recently. I always love hearing your stories, and I'm always happy to amplify and give you a high five on social. Now, if you do not have a subscription, this is the time to go check it out and sign up. Debbie, thank you so much for being on the show. Welcome back. Thank you, Chase. It's so great to see you. I've not seen your beautiful face in far too long. Oh. 
And it is incredible to, I feel like my heart is bursting into the screen here. I do too. It's been so long. It's been what, since pandemic yeah. or pre-pandemic yeah. that uh, uh, we've spent any time together. I am, well, of course I've been, we've been corresponding this whole time and I have been watching you from afar and many exciting things have been going on in your life. Uh, all of which I would love to touch on at some point in our next, uh, the next hour here. But I first have to start off by congratulating you on this epic <laughs> achievement. Uh, you've got a new book out, your seventh, yes, I think. Yes. That's, first of all, that's incredible in and of itself. But the fact that this thing is an absolute masterpiece um, doesn't surprise me a bit because you're uh, so talented on so many different um, vectors in your life from design to creativity to uh, thought, thought leader, incredible on all of these. Y you have released a book called Why Design Matters that in some ways mirrors the podcast, but is also much, much bigger. Um, so first of all, congratulations. And second of all, I'll confess, we were talking before we started recording that this thing is, uh, would you say a year or two behind schedule because it turned into such a beast. Tell us the story. Well, I was supposed to deliver the manuscript to Harper Collins uh, in 20, at the beginning of 2019 and October, <laughs> October 9th, 2018, I went on my very first date with Roxanne Gay. We then proceeded to fall madly in love and everything else was like, ah, I'm in love. Who cares about life? I'll do that later. <laughs> so um, somehow I'd ma I magically thought that I'd find the inspiration to do it and still be able to make my deadline and then realized that that was never, ever going to happen. And so I ended up getting, in 2019, um, a year extension. And then, of course, what happens in 2020? Ba 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 ba, ba 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 ba. And um, my plans for a national photo shoot going all over the country, shooting the subjects of my interviews, also went up in smoke. And I ended up having to do the entire book from my living room, which I actually have to say, I I I could definitely. I could definitely say that there's lemonades here because rather than rely on my own eye and having to ask multiple photographers to work with me, I ended up being able to buy the most beautiful shots that I could find of my subjects. And so that's where my advance went. <laughs> <laughs> and but it was it, in many ways gratefully spent because I really am as proud of the photography in this book and as a photographer I think you know how important that is and what that means that I'm saying oh, yes. this. Um, I, I actually feel that I'm as proud of the photography that we were able to procure as I am of the interviews. Mm. I really well, worked that says hard. a lot because you are one of the best, best, best interviewers in the world, and so that that comes at at very, very high praise. Thank you. Um, if you think that that that's true, and as again, I received this book uh, from you, and it is an absolute stunner. And very few books have the ability to feel like an art book and have 
so much depth. And I want to say the title. It's Why Design Matters, which is uh, a um, parallel, I'll call it a parallel track to your legendary podcast, Design Matters. But the sub the subhead here is conversations with the world's most creative people, which is one of the reasons that you've been on this show before, because you are one of the world's most creative people, certainly one of the most creative people in my life. You've been recognized by all of the places that recognize creative people, whether that's Fast Company or all the other, you, you've been on all of the lists, but you truly, not only do you speak creativity, but your ability to pull it out of other people is unparalleled. And I'm, this is like, if if you are right now listening to this show and you are not subscribed to Debbie's podcast, stop everything, <laughs> press pause on this show, go subscribe. Um, this The fact that you were able to manage extracting this insane amount of wisdom as you would in a in um, a narrative oriented book from so many people in such a beautiful package. Um, I, I truly, as someone who's written books and done both art and narrative books, holy cow, you nailed Thank it. You. Thank you, Chase. That means a lot coming from you. It really does. Oh. Um, it was not an easy oh. process. In fact, I think I, I would, <laughs> it would be fair to say it was a bit of a, a street fight, <laughs> me against the book. <laughs> But um, I think we made our piece together at the end, and, and now I'm really proud of it. Well, I want to circle back to the book in a moment. Sure. And for the handful of people uh, who are not familiar with your work, um, you know, they heard me gush about you in the intro. Um, I'm curious how you would describe your own work, because it has been You've had numerous career arcs, very intertwined with all kinds of inter interdisciplinary, you're an interdisciplinary artist. Um, but I'm wondering in your own words, how would you describe um, your work? Well, um, the first line to my bio is something like, I am a designer, author, educator, and host of the podcast Design Matters. Um, and I think that's pretty accurate. I mean, I've worked in the field of branding for 30 plus years now. I've worked on the design and positioning of over 200 of the world's leading brands, most of which you can find in a supermarket or a drugstore, very fast moving consumer goods, carbonated soft drinks, salty snacks, over the counter pharmaceuticals, you name it, I've touched it. Um, <laughs> so that's a big, big portion of my life. And it still is in some way. I worked, I started working at a company called Sterling Brands in 1995 and worked there until 2016. So 21 years. Um, the last year was more of my year in a slow exit strategy so that the company would be as little disrupted as possible, but the first 20 years <laughs> were very intense. Um, I got there when the company was about 15 people. And when I left, it was about 150 people in numerous offices. In 2008, so about 13 years after I got there, uh, we were able to sell the company to Omnicom. So we joined um, one of the world's biggest advertising agency and marketing networks, which I loved being a part of. Um, and always knew that once that happened, 
there would be an expiration date on my tenure there because I'd had this big dream of doing lots of other things. And then my earnout finished, five-year earnout. And in the meantime, I started working at the School of Visual Arts and I founded a graduate program in branding. But I just kept staying at Sterling. I just kept staying. I was the president of the design division. It was super comfortable. I was making great money. I was renovating a house. And one of my partners sort of had the courage to leave a couple of months before I was supposed to make a decision about whether or not I would take a position there as CEO. And I just felt like I had been so close to taking that step out into the unknown. And then I get sort of tempted with this big fat title. And part of me really wanted to do it. I thought it would be a wonderful experience. Part of me felt that I owed it to all the other women executives at Omnicom to be another woman CEO. Um, it took me four months to decide that I didn't want to do it. My, the, my partner, one of my partners came to me and said, anything that takes you four months to decide to do or not to do is probably something you don't want to do. And so he gave me that easy out and I turned it down, which is one of the hardest things I've ever done in my life. And then went and started doing all of my own thing. I still have my position at the School of Visual Arts. I still run the graduate program here, but it gives me an awful lot of freedom to do a lot of other things. I did decide back in 2016 when I left Sterling that the only branding projects that I was going to do were ones that were beneficial to the world. So I still do a lot of work with the Joyful Heart Foundation with Mershka Hargate. I'm on the board now and I'm working to eradicate the rape kit backlog and sexual violence in our culture. Um, and I'm doing a couple of projects pro bono. Um, and I'm also doing some projects for foundations that suddenly have a lot of money because of really wonderful philanthropists. So I'm doing some of those projects as well. And that's, and that's the corporate work that I'm still doing. Um, but mostly I spend my time now as an educator, as a podcaster, and as an artist. Well, just the fact that that is so rich and so multifaceted, I think underpins the point that I made, you know, when we were reacquainting there in the intro about the breadth of thought, the depth of experience that you, you touched so many things. And there right now, there's someone who's walking on a walking path or sitting in traffic in their car listening to this. And they're saying, that sounds like a dream. There are creatives all over the world who have been told that you have to focus, 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 focus in order to be able to be recognized in your field. And, you know, if the longtime listeners here know that I, I have a prescription for this, but I'm dying to know how you are, would advise or answer that question, Debbie, I want to do everything. I want to wake up and, you know, be a watercolor artist one day and an author the next day. And I want to run my brand agency and I want to do all these different things. And, you know, the reality is that, that there are a handful of people in the world who do that. I think there, there may be more, but a direct question, what's the advice that you give to somebody who wants to do that, whether they're 
you know, where, where, wherever they are in their career, because that sounds what you just described sounds like the penultimate role in, in society, right? Only take the coolest projects and work with amazing people and touch everything. So help us first, let's put the perspective. I am going to be 60 next month. So it's not, that's not true. It can't be true. true. It can't be true. true. People can see some of the people who are not listening can see you and you can't believe it. It's not so fair. yes. So it takes a long time. That's that's the easy answer and be patient. But what I can say is that the first from when I graduated college in 1983 to 1995 when I got my job at Sterling Brands, that was 12 years of what I now call experiments in rejection and failure. They were really tough. I had all these interests, didn't know where to put my energy, was told on one of my first big interviews at Condé Nast of all places that I had to pick one. I've written about that in in Look Both Ways, one of my books of illustrated essays. But I had never been able to pick one. I was even in high school and college was always running around doing lots of different things that all blurred into each other. And I wanted to live my life that way, but just didn't know how. So what I can say to anybody that's listening that is interested in doing, having multiple paths, the one watch out is if you do believe, as I do, that it takes about 10,000 hours to really achieve some level of mastery, that the more you spread out those hours in different paths, the longer it's going to take for you to achieve mastery in any one of them, if you are able to at all. So I attribute a lot of my sort of later in life success because of that, because I wanted to write, because I wanted to illustrate, because I wanted to teach, because I wanted to have a corporate career. All of these things meant that every single one of those things was going to take longer to really happen, quote unquote. So that's what I would tell people. But I would also, I'm going to quote David Lee Roth, who I interviewed two years ago on the podcast. Because this, I was at that recording. We were at that remember? recording. Remember that? <laughs> I don't know if you remember amazing. this, Chase. I have great you, photographs of the three right? of us hanging out. But one of the things he said is maybe one of the most profound things that anyone has ever said in any podcast I've done. And I've done close to 500 at this point. So we were talking about what it felt like in 1984, so one year after I graduated college, to have the biggest album on the planet, the biggest videos on the planet, the biggest tours on the planet, to be like the god of sex, drugs, and rock and roll. And I asked him, how did it feel like to be the most popular dude on the planet, which in 1984, undeniably, he was. And he paused, and I'll paraphrase what he said, but essentially he said, when you get to the top of the tallest mountain, the tippy-tippy top of the tallest mountain that exists, you're almost always alone, it's always cold, and there's one direction. And what that told me in that moment was pace yourself, pace yourself. I don't want to peak. I, I don't want to peak now in, at 60. I wouldn't have wanted to peak in my 40s or 50s. I'd like to think 
I'd like to hope that I could peak the day before I die. I don't want to think ever that my best work is behind me. And so the longer it takes, my feeling is the longer it'll last, the more you can build a career that has multiple meanings in multiple paths, but at your own pace. The problem in society today is because of social media, everybody's comparing, you know, there's only so many people that are going to make it big at 30. <laughs> I was definitely not one of them. Um, thinking back on it now, of course, it's easy in hindsight. Like I would not have wanted to. First of all, I couldn't have handled it. Second of all, where would that mean when I was 40? I would hate to think that my best work is behind me. I always hope that I can do better the next day. Mm. That is definitely, I've asked that question of many people, and that's the most eloquent answer I have heard comparing your uh, Im impression of what David Lee Roth said, that it resonates deeply with me because this idea of mastery, of course, I, I advocate mastery in one area. And that- Whoa, 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 the, the, whoa. No, you don't. You're an, you're an entrepreneur. You're a photographer. <laughs> you're an artist. You're an investor. I mean, please, you're, you're the- epitome of a polymath but but the 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 journey there as you mentioned it could be spread out over many things that you're doing that will take you later in life to achieve mastery in one if not more or there's this a focus and an application of what I've, what i personally appreciate about the focus and the uh, and the application in a primary discipline is that that actually allows you to taste mastery and then once you've tasted mastery, you start to understand and be able to deconstruct what mastery looks like in other yes. areas. So you're, there's like, and our, our dear friend, Tim Ferriss is a legendary at that, right? Deconstructing um, uh, all kinds of different disciplines from salsa dancing to, you know, writing books and, and beyond. Yeah. So yours, though, this idea of you can either go you know, narrow or broad and long. I think that's a, a fascinating uh, way for someone, that same person who's sitting in traffic listening to this right now. You ought to think of that. And there are, it's true, there are no, no there's not one path. But I would like to understand um, our, our also mutual friend, Brene Brown, who's been, obviously we, we can talk about her. She's a superhero. Incredibly generous. So close to both of our hearts. Radiant spirit. She, yeah. Um, so she talks about a thing called gold plated grit. And what she means by that, to paraphrase, is we're able to talk about the hard things in life, but we really just say, oh gosh, that was such a hard time. And then we pivot a nanosecond later to, but here I am on the cover of the magazine or launching my new book or, and to, in service of avoiding the gold-plated grit, you mentioned something earlier about uh, experiments in failure and rejection. I'm hoping we can spend a little bit of time there because for anyone watching and listening right now, you're on top of the world, launching your sixth or seventh book and you know, achieving heights in all these different disciplines. There have been hard parts. Mm -hmm. And in order to avoid gold-plating them, Talk us through some of those hard parts. Was it, was it personal? Was it professional? Was it both? What, you know, and now having mastered so many things and you look back, are there patterns that you could share 
with anyone who's listening? Well, of course I can't talk about my history without referencing Tim, Tim Ferriss, our friend, because he and I have talked very candidly about our early childhood experiences that still impact us to this day. Um, Part of the reason I think that those first 12 years of my professional career were so difficult was because I didn't know who I was. I didn't understand my value. I didn't understand what I could contribute. I suffered from extreme self-loathing, was depressed a lot of the time. Um, Because the first 18 or so years of my life before I went to college were were what I call the dark years or the black years. Um, I grew up in in a very challenging manner. Um, my parents between them are married six times, different people. <laughs> they never remarried each other. Um, after my parents got divorced, I was in um, fifth grade when that happened. Um, my mother quickly remarried a man who was brutally um, abusive to me and other family members. In my case, he was physically, emotionally, and sexually abusive for many years and told me that if I told anybody, he would kill my brother. And I believed him. He was a very big, strong dude and had been a boxer and his previous wife had died. So I wasn't entirely sure like how she died. And so I really believed him. And so I spent four years of my life wearing as many pairs of pajamas as I could put on before I went to sleep so that it would take him longer to get to me um, and in constant terror for, for my life and my brother's life. And after they got divorced, my mother got involved with another person who was um, also verbally and mentally abusive, sexually abusive in a different way, not so much physically, but verbally. And he and my brother didn't get along at all. And at that point, my brother just decided, I can't take this anymore and went to live with my father. And so it was just me, my mother, and this other dude for a long time. So I got away as fast as I possibly could. was 18 years old, went to college, never looked back, and um, started college wanting so much, but not knowing how to get anything, you know, not knowing how to ask for things, not knowing how to put myself in a position of risk or experiment. I was so terrified um, all the time. And my lead gene at that point, and even the first, I would say, 20 years of my career wasn't even artistic achievement. It was self-sufficiency. My lead gene was being able to take care of myself. And that's what drove a lot of my ambition. And that's also what drove my going into a corporate career. I remember in the summer of 1983 thinking, what am I going to do? Which path am I going to take? Am I going to be a fine artist? Am I going to be a commercial artist? I wanted to live in Manhattan. I wanted to take care of myself. So I chose a path of commercial art in an effort to be able to take care of myself and know that I could be secure. And that was the most important thing to me through my early 30s. And it was only when I finally could pretty reliably take care of myself that 
I started to realize just how unhappy I was. And at 30, went into therapy and that changed my life. And I've been doing that ever since. So with the same therapist, you know, there's like a world record happening here, I think. Um, and I've talked again a lot about this with Tim because um, there's so many different paths that one could take for healing, whether it be um, medicinal, whether it could be spiritual, whether it could be psychological. You know, Tim and I talk quite a lot about that on his podcast because while we are so simpatico in so many ways emotionally, we've taken very different paths to arrive at where we are in our lives right now. The healing, conver the conversation you two had about healing, um, of course, you there's a handful of friends that you shared with internally that you guys were going to do this. And I felt very grateful to be um, aware that you, you were doing that work together. And that was one of the most powerful podcasts I've ever listened to. Uh, for anyone who's listening now, you, you're going to want to go check that out. Um, the role of childhood trauma, I think that's a, a really important connection that having icons like yourself share that very publicly, that that is a, not just a thing that happened. It's a process that you have worked, you know, at least half of your adult life to, to um, heal from. But I do have to say, and, excuse me for interrupting, because I don't want to interrupt you, but no, this please. is a really important no. thing to, to acknowledge. I don't know if I would have had the courage, the balls, whatever you call it, to actually disclose to the world <laughs> that this had been part of my history. Not that I was ever interested in gold covered grit, because I talked very freely about how difficult the early years of my career were. And I've been doing that for a long time, mostly because I want people to understand that they don't have to give up if they don't make it to, you know, Forbes under 30 at 30. But when Tim interviewed me the first time, because I had already been working for the Joyful Heart Foundation with Mariska and on the No More movement, he very astutely asked me something that no one else had ever asked. And of course it happened to be on like the world's most popular podcast. And, you know, he said, I noticed on the Joyful Heart Foundation website that you say your work there makes your life make sense. How come? And I had no idea that question was coming, Chase. Like Tim doesn't give me the questions ahead of time. He didn't say, by the way, can we talk about this? It was just like, by the, you know, he didn't even know really what I was going to say. And in that instant, I remember, it's like my whole life passed before my eyes. And I was, okay, this is, this is my friend, Tim, and this is like the biggest podcast in the world. So should I make up a story on the spot? Which, cause he's a really smart dude. He's probably going to know. So I just like took the step into the unknown and, and shared with him why it made my life make sense to do this really important work. And after that, the shame was gone. After that, I had so much inner shame, so much inner self-loathing about ever having anyone know about this. It was always such a big deal to tell someone and then have to worry about pity and just the notion of somebody feeling sorry for me or being seen as a victim or being seen as hopeless or helpless. All of those things disappeared and it was suddenly this happened, kind of happens to one in three women, one in six dudes. So maybe it's important to share. And 
it's one of the most important things that I've done. And I thanked him for that because I don't think, had he not asked me that question, I don't think I ever would have been public about it at all. I, I remember listening to that episode. And again, when you shared it with a handful of your friends before going public with that episode, I was able to, I went and re-listened to two previous interviews, one where I was on your podcast, Design Matters, and another where you were on my podcast. And you had talked in great detail about this process uh, as a young person trying to make it in New York and doing all these things and not being, not having a direction. And, you know, it's incredible. I just got chills uh, when you describe that now as you didn't have an answer to the question, why did your, why did that help your life make sense? And to me, I, 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 it all made sense to me to hear, you know, why we have attached or why in this case you have attached, um, you know, the different experiences of your life, you know, either correctly or incorrectly or, as a mechanism for coping is that's what all this is about really is that that's your body and your world's ability to protect yourself and how that plays out in your life. I would like to understand and take this in a direction of how did that, because as you said, one in three women, one in six men have experienced this. So that's a big chunk of the listeners right now. And I'm wondering Clearly, there is all kinds of work, and you specified different modalities for you and Tim and lots of other folks. How do you feel like this contributed, positive or negatively? I'm not interested in, in value judgment here, but how did it contribute to who you are today, the success that you've had in relationships with your you know, now few years in love with Roxanne Gay and obvious, you know, huge commercial and professional success. Is it, is, can you tie those things together? Well, and I sort of have so, to. How? Yeah, I sort of have to because it's all one life. I think that a lot of my drive and need for achievement came from profound self-loathing. So if I could succeed at this, or if I could prove myself like that, then I'm worth something, then I'm worthy of being alive, then I deserve to be here. And to some extent, I still think that's true. <laughs> These things just don't disappear. Well, maybe they do, but they haven't for me. Um, I still find myself conflicted in, in, in that way very often. And Roxanne is, said to me recently, every time you raise the bar and reach it, you then raise it a little higher, can never just relax. And that's very true. It is very true. Um, still working on that. Hope to be able to get over that before I die. Um, so a lot of that early drive came from trying to be safe, trying to be secure, trying to feel like I mattered in some way. But I was also profoundly afraid of revealing who I was, certainly about my childhood trauma, and then my growing 
suspicion. I don't even know if that's the right word. My growing inclination or my growing acceptance. That's the word. My growing acceptance um, that I was a gay woman. <laughs> I was married to men in my 20s and my 30s. I had two marriages, one from the time I was 27 to 30 and then another in my late 30s. So I married one marriage in my 20s, one marriage in my 30s. And I remember when I hit 50, I was like, I did it. I made it through my 40s without getting hitched again. And never ever thought, and, and was very vocal about the fact that I never thought I was gonna get married again, that I had no interest in getting married again. Um, it didn't help that I had to pay alimony to the second husband, but whatever, <laughs> a little snarky. Um, and then when I fell in love with a woman for the first time, with Maria Popova, she was like, I'm out and proud. I'm not going to be involved with a woman who's not interested in being out. And so I came out. I came out when I was 50 years old. And Maria and I were together for five years. We're still very close friends. And um, everything in my life changed from there. Everything. Um, it was really hard for me to come out to everybody that I knew. I was worried that I'd be judged, had a lot of my own inner homophobia. I also was so worried about being so damaged from my early childhood trauma that this would further make me like damaged goods, that I was just not worthy of being alive. And again, a lot of inner homophobia that I've since gotten over and really, truly understand why the word pride is used. I didn't understand that before, and now I do. And um, after, after Maria and I broke up, I went on a sort of self-imposed solo life. You know, I, I had gone from relationship to relationship to relationship. I, uh, I joked, I think, on Brene's podcast about how my love life, I was like, I operated my love life like a taxi driver. You know, I'd, I'd drive around with an available sign. Somebody would hail me. They'd get in. I'd drive around with them for a while. They'd ask to get out. <laughs> and then I'd put the sign back on again and pick up the next person. I had very little agency in choosing people. I was always afraid of rejection. And I, I just waited for people to approach me. But when after, after two years on my own, I aggressively went after Roxanne. And so that was a very big turning point for me to go after what I wanted. And that was one of the most significant things I've ever done. Put myself in a position the, the, where somebody could say yay or nay. And thankfully they said yay. Well, I, I find it just so beautiful, inspirational, insightful that you, you were able to go after things that you wanted professionally, you know, to get the job, to get the the gig as a designer, to be the corporate boss, to do all these things. And then, but on a personal side, you, you know, pitched yourself as a taxi <laughs> and to, sh to, <laughs> to, to shift, to shift gears. Um, it's just so courageous and beautiful and <laughs> inspiring. Um, so Thank you for being such an incredible example. And again, the relationship between who we are and the work that we do to put out in the world, again, you can really only connect the dots looking backwards. And it's just so powerful to see all the work out in the world and knowing now what you were managing um, 
personally in those those years is um it's very inspirational so thank you for being as vocal and vulnerable and um present as you've been through all this stuff it's an inspiration thank to you. me and obviously thousands if not millions of others thank you, James. Um, well you've been a really good friend to me and i appreciate that a lot is this the same good friend that took you out to sushi and then forgot his wallet uh believe me that? that's that's the least <laughs> of my worries i'm the girl that played alimony remember oh <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's a the true story. Uh, what's, what's the name of that? What's the name of that restaurant? That we were was, at wasn't with, Patty uh, Smith there that night with Ray Fine? Patty yeah. Smith was there. Patty Smith was there, and a Omen. The table Omen. What's Omen. the name, artist with the with the fabric? Yeah. Um, Christo. Oh, Christo. Yes. Yeah. Christo. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. That's classic New York. That like was so exciting. We were sitting everywhere. there, like, oh my god, that that's Patty Smith. That's Patty Smith. <laughs> that's actually Patty Smith. <laughs> Uh, here, her, that her book is incredible. Just kids, there. That's such a such an amazing uh, yes. book. Um, so, speaking of books, I, it, it, we got to go back because, again, the work that you put into that was uh, is genius. And I'm curious about creative process. Sure. You know, there's and there's a hundred different vectors on which I could ask you about your creative process and all these different mediums. What was the process? for creating the book, Why Design Matters, Conversations with the World's Most Creative People? It was really hard because I've had a lot of amazing conversations with people on, on the podcast. Um, I knew that I had a limit to how book, big the book could be. Um, initially, the book was supposed to be 70,000 words. If I looked at, if I once I transcribed more of the the say podcasts I've done in the last five years, each one is about 10,000 words. So I had to include more than seven podcasts, seven interviews. <laughs> so I had 200 interviews transcribed. And then I had to read them all to see if they were evergreen. So what I mean by evergreen is that they weren't specifically about one initiative or one book or one performance. It was really the arc of a life and talking about my guests' creative process or obstacles or journey to making whatever they make. So I felt like there needed to be something in each interview that that last that passed the test of time. Then I needed to make sure that they could be condensed. So some of the interviews that were 10,000 words the one that you and I did, for example, there was nothing I could cut out of that that would allow it to live on its own as an interview that made sense. You know, your life was, we talked so deeply. And so that now will live in a separate online version where there's a lot more content available. Although you do, you are represented in the book by a full page typographic quote, of course. But in some cases, it was really <laughs> difficult. Stefan Sackmeister, another great interview, profound interview, couldn't cut it down. Eric Kandel, the Nobel Prize winning physicist, couldn't cut it down. Just taking the anything out was all muscle. There was no fat. So that was a really difficult process. So I only had, I ended up having room for about 58 interviews. The criteria from my editor was no more than 4,000 words. 
that was so hard. And then I had to <laughs> find photography that also would have one connective tissue. It was easy to find great photography that was stylistically defendable, ownable to the photographer. Annie Leibovitz, for example. I, but there was no way for that photography to work in an arc alongside other photographers. So the criteria for the photography was also, the photography needs to have soul. I need to see the soul of the person in their eyes. And they could be close-ups, they could be portraits, they, no matter what they are, as long as they're soul then that's, that's really what I was looking for. And then they also had to be beautiful. So a couple of people that I interviewed, I just couldn't get, that I wanted in the book, couldn't get great photography. So then they didn't make it in, unfortunately. And then there were some people whose interviews were so wonderful that I had to find, I had to literally find better photography because whatever they gave me, I couldn't use. Oliver Jeffers ended up at the very last minute doing a whole photo shoot just for me so that I could get a photograph that would work in the book. Thank you, Oliver. I found finally found a photograph of Elizabeth Alexander that represented her beauty in a way that I felt was necessary. So that was also a big challenge. And then, you know, everything else, just the whole nature of putting together a book. Oh, the first the first designer that I worked with, my my dear friend, Paul Sayer, quit because working with HarperCollins was too difficult. And he decided, you know what, he, he had already quit on Steely Dan. So quitting on Debbie Millman was not going to be that hard. Um, it was a really challenging process. And then my agent, Charlotte Sheedy, recommended that I ask Alex Kalman, who I knew because of Myra Kalman. And because Tibor Kalman was one of my personal heroes in the 80s and 90s and helped me make some really big decisions about the direction I wanted to take my life in. So then suddenly to be working with Alex Kalman, whose parents helped create me, <laughs> that was incredible. And Alex just knocked it out of the park for me. He did a beautiful, beautiful job and put up with every little nudgy thing I wanted. Can you, what if we try this? Let's, how about we make 68 individual scribbles to end each chapter? You know, it was like he was willing to try anything for me. Well, I think it's pretty, uh, I think a lot of the world, a lot of the people in your life would do anything for you, basically, <laughs> Debbie, because you're well, so charming and freaking awesome. Thank you. Uh, I just want to mention a, a, a short list of, of people who are in, in this book, uh, creative minds like Lori Anderson, Brene Brown, Shepard Ferry, Tim Ferriss, uh, Malcolm Gladwell, Milton Glaser, Ira Glass, Seth Godin. Uh, Stephen Heller, Anne Lamont, Aluna, um, Marilyn Minter, uh, Amanda Palmer, uh, Priya Parker, Esther Perel, Maria Popo. I mean, the list goes on our different Brandon Stanton. The list of epic minds is, it's uh, incredible. Thank you. It's truly, truly a gathering of visionary folks. So this is uh, my personal plug to say if, if um, that this is a, a personal request from me. If you see yourself as a 
creator entrepreneur or someone who is what I call creative curious, please pick up this book. It is a stunner. Um, in the same way that when you were interviewing people as a part of your creative process, you like to talk about things that were beyond, uh, that were timeless. I do believe the book would be timeless, but these concepts that you have talked about, um, the, you know, your experience uh, uh, as a young person um, in a tough environment, your experience as an adult, um, finding your way in the world, being performance oriented because of trying to define ourselves with self-worth. There's all kinds of huge, huge themes. Um, one that also stands out to me is leadership. Um, part of my experience of leadership is um, someone who shines the light back on others. And there's never been a single time we've gotten together where you haven't made me feel so special to be in your presence. And I'm wondering, I'll use that as an example, but what are some of the other characteristics that you feel that you are aware of about yourself that have made you such a powerful voice, a powerful leader in the creative world? It's an excellent question. Really hard. I think I'd have to go back to being taught by Milton Glaser, who was my teacher in 2005 at SVA. And one of the big things that he taught us was that if you see the universe as, an as, a, as a universe of abundance, it will be. And if you see the universe as a world of scarcity, it will be. And he felt that there was enough to go around and we had to share. And that if we hold on to our own stuff tightly, that that's when you get consumed by it. And I've, I've really taken that to heart. Um, I find that any time that I've been generous, it's always something that I feel really good about. And whenever I've been petty or stingy or jealous, I feel ashamed. And so that's just one of the ways that I try to manage my life now. If you're the average of the five people you spend the most time with, you have managed to spend some time with some incredible, <laughs> incredible people. Um, you attract these people into your life, as I like to think of. Um, is there anything, is there a consciousness, conscious awareness of choosing who you spend time with? Um, COVID has made that a little bit easier. <laughs> One thing that I did realize one thing that I did realize during COVID was how much of my life was organized around not disappointing people and not letting them down or getting them upset with me for not doing something that I didn't really want to do that they wanted me to do. Um, and the freedom not to have to do that is something I'm searching for because I still am a people pleaser and never want to rock the boat, never want to have conflict. 
And so that's something that I'm much more cognizant of now. All that being said, it was kind of blissful just spending the last 18 months with Roxanne. Thankfully, we've remained healthy. I'm very grateful that we have been safe. And during the the riots that we experienced last year, there were times when I was really worried for Roxanne's safety. Um, I still worry because just driving while black could get you killed. And, and I've also learned a lot and have witnessed a lot about and of racism. That's something that I, I think a lot more about now, which is necessary. But, but having that time with her, you know, initially, because we didn't live together before COVID, people were like, how are you guys doing? Really worried that now that we were living together, the truth was going to come out and we were going to realize how much we hated each other. Um, when in fact, the opposite really happened. We just realized how, compat- how ridiculously compatible we are. There's really something quite wonderful about being married to someone that likes to watch the exact same television reruns that you do ad infinitum. <laughs> There's something really And you also that. have, you, you also got some new furry friends in the yes, family and it's not a secret on the internet that in addition to be one of the, the best writers in this generation, Roxanne is also a total badass cook yes (laughs) following her instagram is just oh my gosh i'm like gosh debbie gets to eat that every day (laughs) it's so good (laughs) yeah she's an amazing i enjoy it and now she's an amazing dog uh, mama you know she was never she was deathly afraid of dogs before me and took a chance on getting a little little monkey little furry monkey and now we have max the wonder dog (laughs) oh and he is featured uh, beautifully featured in both of your social feeds and he is very handsome very handsome gent um, on these other large topics that um, I think you have whether intentionally or otherwise been able to to get to ground um, on a, at a very large scale again talking so openly and so vulnerably about um, so many different things. And I'm wondering if you have a, if, if you see yourself in a new chapter and if so, what are some of the phrases or ideas or parameters that are defining this? I like the word season better than chapter, but the season of your life. And I'm wondering if you could, Share your thoughts on that. Oh, jeez. You ask such big <laughs> questions. Um, hey, I've been interviewed by I know, you. I know, I know, I, I know. I, not, I, I take it back. I take it back. Um, well, I think one thing that I've recognized is that I'm happiest when I'm making things. Like in the actual process of making Once I'm done making, not so interested. So it's the process of making something that I find so life affirming. And, you know, it could be a lesson plan. 
could be a book, could be a podcast. I just love making something from nothing. There's something magical about that process that I've come to really revere and, and see as a gift. So I try to do that as much as I can. I mean, it's scary to turn 60, I do have to say. Like, whoa, time is running out. I remember when my Aunt Ida was 60, and I was always so concerned about why she always had stuff in her teeth. And I'm really worried that that's what I'm going to turn into. So I've become a flossaholic. <laughs> but I am consumed by the idea of if not now, when? What does it mean to live a full life? When do you feel like it's full enough? And to have that constant beam running through your life now, because everything becomes more urgent and everything that isn't urgent becomes unimportant. And so I'm in the process now in this, I guess, new season um, of starting to think more about the urgency of what I do and what I don't do. That I'm, I'm connecting dots and these are my words, not yours, but that's, it seems to be, to be related to the, there's just, you've created such an orbit on this urgency that if not now, when, I mean, just your marriage to Roxanne, um, I mean, Gloria Steinem married you too. Well, no, she didn't because um, we didn't. She agreed to marry us. Oh, she didn't? But because we eloped. We, oh. Yeah, no, she agreed. Oh, Can right. you believe that? Like we had an opportunity a, to be I mean, married by Gloria Steinem. Instead, we went to a place in LA in Encino called instantwedding.com LA with two of our dearest friends and our family on FaceTime. But see, that's actually a better story now in a weird way. The, <laughs> the, the juxtaposition of those two. That's, that's what I mean. Like this, 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 and even sort of what's pregnant in that concept that you just mentioned is exactly what I'm talking about, right? The if not now, when? Right. Like we could be, you know, we could do this thing, which was, is legendary, or we can do this other thing, which in a way is, is more legendary. So it's just, it's fun, you know, being uh, a friend of yours and watching this season uh, of your life be so rich um, and to see it poured out in your work in the book. Um, I want to shift our attention if we can to an area where I think you are um, able to be expressly helpful to people. Oh, and that's one of the missions and visions of this show is to help people find their calling in life and pursue that with vigor and, an inspired, passionate way. Um, and it stems indirectly from, you did a class at Creative Live called A Brand Called You, which if you haven't, you know, if you're listening again, you haven't checked it out and you're a subscriber, you ought to. It's incredible. Uh, it, I'm wondering this, it that's kind of as I zoom out on the, the things in the orbit here of my notes of what I wanted to talk to you today, 
it's it is very much about a life well lived it's about finding yourself losing yourself you know there's is all these it's it's you know life with a capital l and and art with a capital a creativity with a capital c um in many ways that is if i had to sum up your life i i feel like those are some of the concepts that i would try and put my arms around which are big and here you are teaching other people to be able to brand themselves to position themselves. And you've talked about it in, you know, largely in the professional sense, because it was a class on class on creative live, but I feel like there's a bigger narrative there. Uh, and I'm wondering if as you hit this season, this new stride or this new season of life as, as uh, we're referring to it, would you change anything from the way you have taught or is there a, um, are there, what's the lens that you would coach people? Because again, people right now are like, oh my God, what an incredible soul. I can feel it just oozing out of this woman. I want some of that. And, you know, from a very practical standpoint, from a coaching standpoint, a teaching, again, I'm referring to your class at Creative Live, but here that if we could do a little addendum to that, people want some of this how what would you say to them what are you could you steer them towards that well the name of that class and i also teach a class with the same name at school of visual arts to my students is a brand called you which is a riff on tom peter's book and his 1995 i think fast company cover story called the brand called you which kind of changed the game but I don't know that I make it clear enough in my creative live class that there's a sort of tongue in cheekiness to that title. And I want to help people create better ways of finding their path in that class and defending their ideas, presenting who they are. But I do have to say, and this is the big addendum and maybe it needs to be refreshed for the class. I have a really big distinction now in what it means to brand yourself versus branding a product. And a lot of it comes from the research that I've done in the last five years in understanding how much humans manufacture meaning. And we manufacture meaning through symbols, through artifacts, through objects. We've been doing that on this planet for about 10,000 years. We started creating a way to articulate our view of reality and record our experiences on the caves of Lascaux. 10,000 years ago, we started to create marks to signify our beliefs. They didn't have a PL associated with them. They didn't have a return on investment that was expected by shareholders. But these marks allowed us to telegraphically communicate our beliefs in a way that allowed others that were seeing them to believe that we were all part of the same tribe, literally and figuratively. We were able to telegraph that communication in an effort to be safe, in an effort to feel part of something bigger than we were on our own. 
we've been doing that ever since in a more and more and more and more sophisticated manner. There's really no difference in the way that we've created religious symbols and communicated those across the planet and created consensus through those marks and behaviors and rituals. And then in how we create behaviors and rituals using the Nike logo, there's no difference. The common denominator in both or all is that they're manufactured. They're not alive. You don't birth them. You don't, in the traditional sense, in the very literal traditional sense, they don't bleed. They don't have a soul, a real living soul. They don't breathe. So there's a big difference between a brand and a person. People can own brands. They can market brands. They can create brands. But to see oneself as a brand freezes you in time. You become a slave to that identity. Humans are messy. We lie. We evolve. We cry. We celebrate. We do all sorts of things that brands could, should, and never try and never will be able to. So rather than grow your brand, which is a manufactured entity, I suggest that you work on growing your reputation and your character. And then all of those other things that you want in terms of awareness, in terms of acknowledgement, those things come from that. People know that brands are manufactured entities. The last thing, I, I, I think personal brand is an oxymoron because brands aren't personal. You can project your personality into them, but they're never gonna give you anything back because they're not alive and we are. And so I suggest for anybody that's looking to build a brand, concentrate first and foremost on your character, concentrate on your reputation, concentrate on the mastery of what you're making, and then everything else comes from there. I'll get off my soapbox. <laughs> that's the best soapbox. You stand on that thing and shout as long and as loud as you can because that was absolutely beautiful. And uh, I can't think of a better way to end our conversation as much as I could talk to you your friend for another infinite number of hours uh i'm that is absolutely a beautiful sentiment it's um one of the most applicable pieces of advice this i think ever on the show so yeah. thank you very very much congrats on the book again why design matters conversations with the world's most creative people uh this show will drop the same week it is out this is available 100 it's just go to your indie bookstore or amazon online whenever you get your books and um congratulations it's a stunner and um thanks for being on the show Chase, thank I'm, you i love it's, you it's a treat i miss friend. you i want to be in the same I room know, I, do too. I want to be in the same room it's crazy when are we going to be able to do that again <sighs> um Thanks. Until next time, uh, is there anywhere else you'd like to steer people and their energy around the work that you're doing? I know the book is the is uh, what we're excited to share today, but anything else where you'd steer Just people? Just creative life. <laughs> it's the best place it's to be It's a great, it really, it, it really is such a great class. And uh, 
I, the, the conversation with Roxanne is also yes. available there. That is just a, it was such a, a important and timely one. Thanks for sharing uh, her with me early on in your, in your experience and um, good luck with the documentary for those who uh, don't know that if you're watching the show, there are some cameras that have been moving in the background yeah. and it's another example of uh, this, all of the different vectors you've got going on. Congratulations, friend. I'm so happy to celebrate you and your moment. Um, please give my best to Roxanne and signing off until the next time we get to be together again. I bid you and everyone else out there on the internet in the world. I bid you all adieu. Thank you, Chase. Thank you. All right. That's it for the show today. But Hey, before you go, I want to just make one extra point. And that is, it's my hope, my goal. The reason that we at Creative Live produce this show, I've been doing this for 10 years now. The goal is to add value to your life. And my hope is that if you are applying these things, the things that you learn uh, from today's show or previous episodes, my belief is that you will get to where you want to go more quickly and that your life will be more fulfilled. So if that's working for you, I'm dying to hear your feedback, whether that's in reviews on any of the podcast platforms that you listen or on social. I pay attention to all those things. Or of course, you can text me at uh, 206-309-5177. On social, you know, I'm listening to your takeaways and the guests that you want to see on the show and recommendations for for topics that we can cover in the future. And what I want to know is that this is working for you. And if you want to put this to work, the concepts, I can't recommend enough that you check out a subscription to Creative Live. The way you check that out is go to creativelive.com slash creator pass. You can get a subscription for like, I think it averages out to be like 12 or something, 12 bucks a month for 2000 classes. Those are always the next best steps in a follow-up to this podcast. So again, thank you so much for uh, being a part of the community here around the show, around the work that I do in the world. Thank you so much for paying attention. And I want you to know that I am paying attention to you, your work, and everything that you're sharing out there about the show. So thanks. And I'll see you next time.